0: So when we meet people for the first time, when you meet someone new, maybe you think about meeting a visitor out in the rotunda, rotundra this morning. What are some of the questions that we typically ask when meeting someone for the first time? We say, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? These sort of basic, standard sort of questions we all know to ask that help us get acquainted with someone, who they are. And likewise, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, open up by answering some of those same basic questions for us. Who is this Jesus? Where does he come from? What is he here to do? It makes me think something like um, your favorite prequel to one of your superhero, uh, uh, one of the superheroes you like, their, their origin story. Okay, I had to ask our, our uh, resident superhero expert, which of course is Sam Park, about these things to make sure I had my facts straight. But you get the origin story of like, how, do, how does Superman come on the scene? And where does he get all these superpowers from? He comes from a planet known as Kryptonite. And as he is sent in this little spaceship to Kansas, um, and a family finds him, he has all these superpowers from coming from a planet that was about to be destroyed, Or I remember watching Superman growing up, and there are different iterations of, of kind of the origin story of Superman. But you kind of wonder, if you just plop into the narrative, you're like, how did this guy get spider webs coming out of his wrists and have spidey sense and all that? Well, he was doing an internship at a lab, and he was bitten by a radioactive spider that, of course, injected him with these superpowers. Without the origin story, you don't exactly know, you know where are these people coming from, why are they doing what they're doing, how did they get the powers they had, what makes them a superhero. And so the Gospels, likewise, open up by providing us what you might think of as Jesus' origin story. So with Mark, we begin with the ministry of John the Baptist, who helps us understand Jesus' ministry in light of uh, Isaiah, the fulfillment of J- Isaiah's um, of coming restoration of Israel. Or with Matthew and Luke, we get the birth narrative, the story of how Jesus is born, that help us clue us in to, to who Jesus is and what his mission is all about. But unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which begin with Jesus' earthly life and his earthly ministry, going no further back, essentially, than his birth, in the Gospel of John, John goes even farther back. He goes back beyond history and even time itself. John's origin story for Jesus actually begins in eternity, the pre-incarnate Son of God. And so it's because of this that it's no surprise then that John 1, 1 through 18, the passage that Matthew just read for us, that it contains one of the richest, if not the richest, theological descriptions of Christ in all of the scriptures. And so, for the next four weeks, we will be in our series on Advent. Okay, Advent is a word that simply means coming. The coming of Christ is what it refers to. And so, what we're doing in Advent season, around the time of December, essentially, is we're we're focusing in on what it meant for Christ to come, for God the Son to become a human being, the incarnation and come to us. So the incarnation is another one of those words that has kind of that Latin feel going on, incarnate, the infleshing of God, the becoming human of God, that God the Son became a human being, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas, um, and that's what we're looking at over these next four weeks. So what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks is we're going to be parking out in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, And we're going to look at four of the major themes that sort of construct the message of this section. And so we're, this morning, going to look at the designation of God the Son being called the Word. That's our focus for this morning, is what does it mean, first of all, we're going to kind of take this in two steps. First of all, what does it mean for Jesus to be called the Word, for God the Son to be designated as the Word. What is John trying to tell us by doing that? And then second of all, how do we respond to Christ as the Word? How do we respond to this reality of God the Son as the very Word of God? All right, and so we can break down... We can break down the meaning of of this this way. We can say that the incarnate Jesus is God's saving revelation. We're going to break that down into three parts as we unpack the idea of what does it mean for Jesus to be called the Word. We're going to break that down into those three very words. That the incarnate Jesus is God's saving revelation. Revelation, God's saving revelation. We'll look at each three of those words that will help us understand. The first we'll look at is God's revelation. That it's God's revelation. We see that part of what John is doing by describing Jesus as the word is actually identifying him with God himself. That Jesus is presented as God. He shares the essence, the attributes, the nature of what it means to be God. We see that he's eternal. So look with me in verse 1. It begins, In the beginning was the word. And that, of course, is alluding to, when else have we seen that language in the beginning? That alludes to Genesis 1, right? The creation account. That which precedes creation. But not only so, but in verse 2, when he sort of repeats this language, he adds this piece that, that he was in the beginning with God. In other words, not merely creation, not merely that he goes back to the moment of creation, but that there's an eternal nature to him. He's with God, the eternal God. So he himself is eternal, the attribute that belongs to God alone. He's with God We also see that the word is described as an agent of creation, as the creator, the one through whom creation was created. So as I already mentioned, we have these allusions to the creation account in Genesis 1, right? You have, in the beginning, and how does Genesis open? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John is Intentionally using that language to to conjure up the creation account from Genesis 1, to cause us, cause our mind to go back to Genesis 1 and recall creation. Also, he by being called the Word, what does that sort of allude to us? What does that conjure up for us? Well, as you remember, in the creation account of Genesis 1, how does God do his act of creation? How does God create? We see in Genesis one that it happens by God's word, that God simply speaks things into His into existence. God merely wills that things exist; He speaks their existence, and they exist, and it happens. And God said, "Let there be light." For example. And so by designating Jesus as the Word, John is telling us he was the Word, he was that agent of creation through whom God created the world. God the Father created the world through the Son as the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. We have a Trinitarian creator, a Trinitarian creation. Verse 3 makes it explicit that he is the creator. All things were made Through him, through the word. And just in case you missed that point, without him was not anything made that was made. There was nothing made that was made, except that he made it. In other words, if you were to make a diagram of, on the one side you have creator, the the one who makes the creation, the one that precedes creation, the one that doesn't have a beginning, but gives beginning to everything else, And over on the other side, you have creation, the things that come into existence at some point, the things that are made, the things that that don't have existence as as an an inherent property within themselves. They have to be brought into existence. You have creator and you have creation. You're going to put the word, you're going to put Jesus on this side of that equation. He's the creator. He is not the first creation that then creates everything else, but literally everything was created through him. He himself is not part of the things that were created. He is the creator. In other words, he is God, a prerogative that belongs to God alone. Only God is the creator. To create is to be God. And so we see that um, we get the sort of beginning ingredients for what eventually became the church's articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. So if you look at verse 1 with me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and so there's a a sense in which we can distinguish the word from God we can make a distinction that the word is with him there's that relationship there's a coexistence and yet he goes on to say and the word was God he is God what it means to be God the word is all of that and nothing less the, the, the language that the early church used was consubstantial. He had all the substance of what it means to be God. He is the same as God. He is God. He's to be identified with God, and yet he can be distinguished from God. Not separated from God, but distinguished persons within God. And this, again, this is the, this is the ingredients that eventually became the articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in essence, one substance, Whatever it is to be God, there is only one of, of him, of that, and yet we can see a distinction of persons who share those divine attributes. And this idea of speech is an apt um, symbol for the Trinity. On the one hand, it, it conveys the unity of the Trinity, that there's only one God. That is, is as someone speaks, as they give a word, that is, that is not someone else's thoughts, that is thoughts. That is their thoughts. There's a unity between the speaker and their spoken word. It is the, it is the very person speaking. It is their self-expression. There's a, there's a unity between them. You can't separate those two. What I say is my thought. And yet we can distinguish, nonetheless, between the speech and the speaker. And so it's apt symbolism for the trinity, Likewise, in Hebrews 1, verse 3, we see that Jesus, God the Son, is called the radiance of the glory of God. That is the glory of God. He's the radiance. He proceeds as as the word is a self-expression of God. So Jesus, in another metaphor, can be called the radiance of that glory, proceeding from the very essence of God. And so what's the point here? As John describes the word as God this means that the word can be a revelation of God because he himself is God. And so when the word eventually shows up on the scene in the incarnate Christ, it's a revelation of none other than God himself, which brings us to the second point, that the incarnate Jesus is God-saving revelation. Now let's focus on that word revelation. This is God-saving revelation. Revelation. As we've already said, by calling Jesus the Word, by calling God the Son the Word here, that is a way of describing God's self-communication. That when we speak, we share our thoughts, we communicate, we express ourselves, we reveal our thoughts to others. And so by calling Jesus the Word, God the Son the Word, John is cluing us into the fact that he is the very self-communication of God He discloses, he self-discloses God. He is the expression of God. He reveals God to us. And as this passage is structured, um, I included this in the the announcements that get sent out in the email, so you you can see the structure of how this passage kind of uh, is organized. It it forms kind of this, this beginning and end sandwich sort of thing called a chiasm. But at the beginning and the end, they communicate a similar thought, And if you go down to the very end of this passage in verse 18, this is how he closes. He says, no one has ever seen God. We can't see God. The only God, though, who is at the Father's side, the Son of God, that is, he has made God known. So sort of the flip side description of Jesus being called the Word, the self-expression of God, is then you come down to 18, and John tells us this incarnate Christ makes God known. How? Because he himself is God. And so get this. What John is telling us here is that the incarnation is God's revelation. It is the revelation of God. Again, incarnation is just this fancy term that means God becoming flesh. That is Jesus Christ. God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. And when God did that, Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, is in himself a revelation of God. That when we look at Christ, when we look at Jesus, we are seeing God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh, became a human being, the incarnation, and he dwelt among us. And notice then what it says. As a result of these things, as a result of the Word becoming flesh, we've seen his glory. The glory as the only Son from the father on account of the incarnation on account of God becoming a human being we can look at the human being Jesus and in him we see the very glory of God because he himself is God the incarnation among all other among all the wonderful things that it does for our salvation one of the things it does is it shows us who God is we see God in Jesus because he himself is God As John 14, 9 said, when Jesus was speaking to one of his disciples, Philip, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And not only is Jesus God's revelation, not only is the incarnate Christ God's revelation, a revelation of God, but it's the ultimate revelation of God. It's the high point. It's where everything else was leading up to. So Hebrews 1 again, as we read earlier, but if we go back to verses 1 through 2 there, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God has revealed himself along the way, along the history of redemption, across the Old Testament. But now, in these last days, in the final days, God has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That he is God's revelation, not now merely in words, the words of the prophets, but revelation in a person. And all of those words, all of those prior points of revelation, all of general revelation, revelation of God that we see in creation, It all is pointing to Jesus. He is the center of revelation. The Old Testament, all of it, is pointing forward to Christ, and the New Testament, everything after Jesus, is simply reflecting back and commenting on Christ. He is the pinnacle, the ultimate expression of God, God's highest form of revelation. He reveals God. And then lastly... As we said, the incarnate Jesus is God's saving revelation. I want to focus, on, focus in on that word saving. He is God's saving revelation. And so as we mentioned before, John is alluding to and con- deliberately conjuring up creation language, right? In this passage, he's causing our mind to think about the creation account again. And by reinvoking the creation account... John seems to be suggesting and raising our expectations for maybe a new creation. As we had the first creation in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now we have in John 1, in the beginning was the word. We get glimmers of this when we see that not only do we have the language of in the beginning and God's spoken word, but then he'll go on in verse Four and five, and falling, and speak about the light, how this word was the light. And so, how in the creation account in Genesis 1, God created the light and he separated the light from the darkness and he caused those two things to separate, causing order. So, in the book of John, darkness, if you know, is a symbolism for a state of spiritual corruption and blindness. That throughout the book, darkness will be that, that will be a symbol in John's gospel for those who are yet saved, or yet they're yet unsaved. They need to be saved. They're under God's judgment. They're spiritually blind. They don't see the truth of God in Christ. And so by calling Jesus the light here, John is talking about not merely is he alluding back to the original creation, but he's suggesting that Jesus is the light of a new creation, pushing back the darkness of sin. Uh, An apt um, parallel passage for this comes in Paul's writing to the Second Second Corinthians to the Corinthian church. He says in Second Corinthians 4, 6, that for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that is in creation, the very God who said, let light shine of darkness, what has he done? He's now shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is God in creation spoke light into existence and separated the light from the darkness, so now God is doing a new creation in which he pulls people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that light is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Light becomes a metaphor then for living in God's new creation, having been saved out of darkness. And John seems to be doing the same thing here. By conjuring up creation language, he is saying, get ready for a new creation. Jesus is the light who brings us out of darkness. We see this elsewhere in John, even in this passage, where by the time we get to verses 12 and 13, he's going to talk about how we are going to be reborn. That's new creation language, right? We've been born once, but now we need to be born again. We need to be made new we are going to become the children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we eventually see in chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, as if anyone is going to see the kingdom, he must be born again. And John, the Gospel of John loves to talk about eternal life, that those who believe, even as the famous, you know, John 3:16, all who believe will experience eternal life. That is new creation reality to be made new, to have eternal life once again, to be resurrected in Jesus, not only in the future physically, but even now spiritually. And so the very same word through whom God made the first creation, the agent of the first creation, now that very same word is God's agent for a new creation, for a second creation. A little bit of a commercial for Athanasius's On the Incarnation, which is this month's Book of the Month, Athanasius says it this way. He says the renewal of creation has been wrought, it's been achieved in other words, by the very same word who made it in the beginning. There is thus no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one father has employed the same agent, God the Son, for both works. Affecting the salvation, bringing about the salvation of the word, world sorry, through the same word who made it in the beginning. It makes sense, it's fitting in other words, that the very one who made the first creation would now renew and restore that creation. And so the point being this, that, that this divine revelation, we talked about Christ the incarnate one as God's revelation, this revelation aims at salvation. It is God's saving revelation, it is aiming at a new creation, at the renewal of ourselves and the rest of this world. And so, in short, the incarnate Jesus is God's saving revelation. Now, how do we respond to that? What is our response to seeing that Jesus, the incarnate God, is God's saving revelation? Five things. First of all, it must be noted that when, I dis- when I'm choosing to describe Jesus as God's saving revelation, I'm not trying to say that simply by um, Revealing these things, salvation just automatically happens. You have to respond properly to the revelation. So as we talked about the structure and how it kinda, of this passage, how it kind of makes a sandwich, and the very center of this passage, which shows us that this is the heart of the passage, we get verses 10 through 13. We get a contrast between those who reject this revelation and those who receive this Revelation. So in other words, Jesus showing up as a saving revelation of God doesn't just automatically make us all saved. It depends on how we respond to that revelation, which aims to save us. So on the one hand, we have those who reject the revelation. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet that world didn't know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. So on the one hand, you have those who don't receive him, those who don't know him, Those who are in darkness and they're blind to him. But, then we get this this contrast in verse 12. But, what about those who respond differently? To all who did receive him, that is, those who believed in his name, those who trust in him for salvation. He gave them the right to become the very children of God. Are born. What is, there, what is this? What does it mean to be a child of God? Well, this is. We're not talking about a physical birth here. They're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, the first way we respond to Jesus as the Word, as God's Word, is by believing in Him. Is by trusting in Him for our salvation. There's a lot of people who are searching in this world for for truth and for meaning. There's a lot of um, just angst right now where we're all trying to figure things out. We're questioning everything. We're trying to find a path that we think makes sense of life. We're looking for our own definition of truth and how we can find meaning to our lives. But if we attend to what God actually says, his definition of truth, the one who owns us, what he says is is, is the meaning of this world and the meaning of our life, we find that at the center of it is our need for a savior. The pinnacle expression, the pinnacle form of God's revelation, his highest form of revelation, when he speaks to us, he delivers his message to us, it comes in the form of a savior. We have to understand reality, we have to understand our life, The purpose of our life was was ultimately, we have to understand that ultimately under Jesus, as those who are created to worship and serve God, as those who haven't done that, but need to be redeemed by his son. And so we need to, first response is that we have to believe in Jesus for our salvation. We have to trust in him, not trusting in anything that we can do, not the the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but trusting solely in God. And there are a lot of people who are, who are exploring different paths. There's this idea that there may be, maybe there's multiple pathways to God in every different religion or kind of you form your own pathway of what you think makes most sense to you. We'll all find our paths to God, or our, our paths of kind of salvation, ways to find um, just satisfaction in life or relief from suffering or what have you. But the Gospel of John comes in here. God's Word tells us. That we actually, it's not multiple pathways to God, but we have the pathway to God through Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's through Jesus that we come to know God. He is the revelation of God. It's through him that we can know God. And so the first response is to believe in him. It's to trust in Christ, the incarnate word, for our salvation. To believe the revelation that God has spoken in him. The second one is to recognize that there is no neutrality in this decision. You can't sit on the fence, in other words. Okay, so um, sometimes I see people, I don't know if people still do this, but for a while there would always be these debates on social media among my friends about who is better, Michael Jordan or, or LeBron James, right? You get all these heated debates about Michael Jordan versus LeBron James. And I'm sorry if you care a lot about that, but I don't. And I've always wondered, like, why do so many people care so much about this? Like, does it matter which one's better? They're both great, right? You don't have to have an opinion about who's better. Michael. Like, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be, people get so worked up about these sort of things. It doesn't matter. Like, who cares? Or if you want to have a debate of what's better, Popeyes or Chick-fil-A, which I think on a good day it's probably Popeyes. Sorry, I know, I'm still evangelical, but I think it's Popeyes. Okay? <laughs> I like Chick fil A too, though. But it doesn't matter. Like, it's just fast food. It's just chicken sandwiches. Just chicken sandwiches. Okay? But here's the thing that's not the way we can approach God's centermost revelation of Himself. You don't have, there's nothing more important than that. All of God's revelation is important. And of course, His centermost revelation, the person of Jesus Christ who comes to save us. That's not something that you can just be like, ah, eh, it's not that important, I don't have an opinion on that. There's no riding the fence. To ride the fence and not have a decision about Jesus is to make a decision against Jesus. It's to make a decision not to trust in Jesus. You can't punt, especially when John says that Christ has come to save us, not to condemn the world, but those who don't believe are condemned already. You're not neutral before God. In your sin, You're condemned already. You are born in need of a Savior, and he is born to be that Savior. The third thing is this, that if God is the creator of this world, you cannot accurately understand it apart from God and what he says about it. Okay, I'm forming an argument here, so track with me, okay? If God is the creator of this world, which the Bible says he is and we believe that he is, you cannot accurately understand this world or yourself as part of that creation. You are part of that creation. You can't even understand yourself, why you're here, why you exist, what the meaning of your life is. You cannot understand any of that properly if you reject what he says about it, if you ignore what he says, his revelation, in other words. I think about this even yesterday. I, was, I can't remember what it was, but I remember dealing with one of my kids and trying to explain some basic thing to them about, you know, if you do this, this is going to be a lot easier, and this is going to be good for you. Um, probably like how they wash their hands or something simple like that. And they were throwing a fit because they wanted to do it their way, right? And I in my head, I'm like, this is what we do all the time. Like, God has created the world a certain way. There's an order to it there's his law there's the reason we exist and we want to think that we know better and we're going to go do our own thing right okay we can't we can try to do it but we're going to get, we're going to get ourselves in a in a big mess it's not going to go well it's going to lead to suffering and pain and ultimately god's judgment so that's true generally that we can't understand the world, we can't understand our own lives, our own purpose for existence by ignoring the one who made all these things. That means that if Christ is God's ultimate revelation, the very center of all the universe, the very center of all that God communicates, you can't ac- accurately understand reality apart from Christ. And again, folks in our world are, are rightfully searching for truth, they're searching for meaning. Think about different like, ebbs and flows of society. I think that's a really strong one right now, is that there's a lot of people, sort of our, our non-believing neighbors, who are, they just feel a deep angst to try to find meaning, to try to find truth. The, the, the mores of our society have kind of broken down those structures that leaves you kind of feeling hanging. Like, what's the purpose of this life? You feel a, a, you feel a strong current towards nihilism. Like, there is no meaning, and yet we want to create something, because who wants to go that route? So we want to define our own meaning then. We want to define our own morality. We want to be able to say what is right and wrong, just like Adam and Eve in the garden who go to the tree of good and evil to say, we'll decide what we think is good and evil. And so we continue to sin out the same way that Adam and Eve did. We want to define things for ourselves. But if Jesus is the center of reality and the center of how God defines reality, the ultimate revelation of God, we have to give up our autonomy. We have to give up being the rulers of ourselves and we have to submit to God's revelation in what is true, in what is good, and what is right. We look to Him and not our own opinion. And the other thing is that this is actually a beautiful gift from God. Because we can now rest from the search. You think about what it would be like to grow up today where so many kids are being told that they have to basically define who they are. They have to define their identity. That is absolutely, that is, that is not something we were made to bear. The weight of having to define your very purpose and your identity was not something we were created to bear. We think in our society that that's freeing, that that's liberating for someone to do that. That's crushing. There's a rest in being able to say, I don't define myself. I look to God and he defines me. And I rest at his feet and listen to what he says. I don't have to be the one who comes up with all the answers, who has to figure out truth and meaning because I can look to him. And then fourthly, I think we respond to Jesus as God's revelation, as God's word in our own mission as a church. That if this is true, that Jesus is God's revelation for a world in darkness, We ought to share this saving message with them. We ought to be eager to share the saving message of Christ with them. That we have not our own message, but God's message revelation. God has spoken in the person of Christ, and we are now, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we have been made ambassadors to share that message with others. That is an awesome privilege, but also then recalling the fact that the world is in darkness, the world is in misery, the world, this is us apart from God's grace, so we don't say this to the disdain of others, but the fact that apart from Christ, we are blind, we are searching for meaning, and we're lost in doing so, and we have the ability to share God's Saving revelation with our neighbors. And then fifthly, get to know Jesus. If Jesus is God's ultimate revelation, get to know him. Study him in the Gospels. Read all of Scripture as pointing to Jesus. But also, spend time in the Gospels, like I said. Look at the actual point where we see the life of Jesus... And spend time reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and learning about the character of our Savior. Jesus is where we are most fully shown the very nature of our God. This is where we see, as we saw even in the Exodus, when God reveals himself to Moses. God shows Moses, he says, this this is who I am. He says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed to Moses this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty and leave them unpunished. And we see in Jesus this very character of God come to full expression. As we read in the Gospel of Counts, we see who he is. Maybe if you, if you haven't picked up the, the, one of our free copies of Dane Ortlund's Gentle and Lowly, the subtitle is something along the lines of like Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. That would also be a great tool into just looking to who Jesus is, the ultimate revelation of God, and thereby learning who God is as you see the heart and experience the heart of Jesus. As we move and anticipate heading into the Lord's Supper then, if in Jesus we have this, this, this most fully uh, the the fullest expression of God's revelation, we also then see that in the Gospel of John, one one of the central aims of Jesus' mission was to glorify God by revealing God in himself. And by the end of the Gospel, Jesus says that he does this primarily how? In the cross. The cross is, is, the, is, is, is his glorification, he says, and it's the point at which he glorifies the Father. The cross, in other words, the very glory that we see in Jesus, as, as, as John 1, 14 says, that in him we've seen the glory, the glory as, the only, as of the only begotten Son from the Father. The point where we, where we see that glory the most is actually in the cross. That's where we see the character of God more than anywhere else. John twelve twenty three says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 27, now this, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But no, it's for this purpose that I've come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. God, glorify yourself through this very reason I've come, this hour, as he calls it, his death. And so in chapter 17, 1, he prays, Father, now the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And so throughout John's gospel, Jesus refers to his death as that hour of his glorification. And so Jesus, the word, is the saving revelation of God and his death as we celebrate it and as it's depicted in the Lord's Supper is the center of that revelation. You want to know God? Look to the gospel. You want to know God? Look to the Lord's Supper and what it shows us in the very death of Christ. In Jesus' death, we see the deep, deep love of God, the forgiveness of God His going to great extents to save us and to show us mercy that we don't deserve. We see the justice of God where he doesn't brush away our sins, but he satisfies them in his atoning death. And the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of those realities. It is God's, it is is an institution from God that he has given us to depict these realities for us. His body and blood given over for us to cover our sins. And it is a seal of these things. That is, it's a pledge, it comes, it's a pictured promise. It comes with the very promises of God so that when we believe these things through the supper, we are actually communing with Christ and we are experiencing saving fellowship with him. So at this point,